Um, I put these uh, things on my uh, Facebook this week, and, and by the way, if you, if you want to know what the executive director does, you could follow my Facebook, because I try to just post where I'm going and what I'm doing to some extent, some things I can't post on there. And also, before I forget it, we've got a newsletter sign up over here, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. There was a, a humorous chain letter circulated which began with the description of the perfect pastor. Perfect pastors are 29 years old with 40 years of experience. (laughs) Perfect pastors regularly condemn sin without hurting anyone's feelings. Perfect pastors never preach more than 20 minutes. Wait a minute, who wrote that? (laughs) Who wrote that? Perfect pastors make 15 calls or visits a day and are always in the office when needed. Perfect pastors, above all, are always good looking. A perfect pastor is always in the church across town. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other churches that are also tired of their pastors. Then bundle up your pastor and send it to the church at the top of the list. In one week, you will receive 164 pastors, and one of them should meet your needs. Have faith. Do not break the chain. One church broke the chain and got their old pastor back. A lot of people ask me what the Baptist Network Northwest does. They ask me what I do. Uh, that's not a new question. Uh, pastors get asked that all the time. What, what do you do you know, in between Sundays or whatever? Um, and uh, what I do is reflective of what a guy named Ralph Lemonen said to me once. Ralph Lemonin, that's a real name of a real guy in Boardman, Oregon. And we went to coffee. He was a guy in the church and uh, went to coffee and he said, I'm convinced most pastors are in over their head most of the time. And I thought, (laughs) well, I hope that's a compliment, Ralph. (laughs) And he meant it that way. And what he meant was, you're trying to do things that either can't be done or, or appear to not be able to be done. And boy, I feel that way every week, at least once, if not multiple times. You know some of the challenge in finding a pastor. I've got half a dozen church names on my list looking for pastors, and I don't frankly know where any of them are going to come from. I have pastors looking for churches, and I'm not sure where any of those guys fit. Even more, much more challenging than that, and much more of a burden to me, is churches that are near dying. And I think, Lord, we've got to be able to turn this around somehow. And I look deep down within, and I think, Wow, am I the guy that's going to do this? Um, My colleagues think I am. 
I hope to be. You may have questions like that about your own walk with the Lord. Can I really do these things that God has called me to? Am I really up to it? Is it really possible to do great things for God, not just get by? I think the life of Moses helps us understand the answer to that question. And I want to speak to you from Exodus chapter 3 and 4 and and understand some lessons from the life of Moses that, that answer the question about our potential for Christ. What is our potential? What can we do as an individual? What can we do as a church? The answer comes from an important principle that's illustrated by the life of Moses. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, Excuse me, yeah, there we go. I told you the right thing, I just didn't do the right thing. There we go. Hmm. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was not burning with fire, but the bush, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him in the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land, that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress, oppress them. Now, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. God called Moses to do something that seemed impossible. God called Moses to do something that seemed impossible. God told Moses to go and talk to one of, of, if not the most powerful man in the world and tell him to do something he would not want to do. This man, the king of Egypt, whose title was Pharaoh, Pharaoh is just another word for king, was probably a stepbrother or a cousin of Moses by adoption. Have you ever thought about that? You remember Moses put in the basket by his mom, put in the water because she was supposed to kill him, but she didn't want to do that, but she didn't know what to do, so she put him in the basket, and they watched, and who picked him up but Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. Who else was he raised with? All of the rest of Pharaoh's children. 
Pharaoh would have had multiple wives. He would have had many children. And when that Pharaoh died, and surely that had happened because this is 40 years later, one of those children would have been the Pharaoh. And so God is not only asking Moses to go talk to a powerful man, but somebody who was one of his closer relatives. Well, I say closer by legal relation. How close are children in the king's family when they're adopted from a different ethnic group? And so God says, I want you to go tell this guy to let my people go. Now, if that wasn't enough... Pharaoh was profiting from the Jewish people. They were building his treasure cities or his storehouse cities uh, by slave labor, and we don't know exactly what form that slave labor took, but we know it was oppressive. The scripture talks about it being oppressive. There had to be some sustenance involved. He had to feed them so they could keep working. I don't know if he gave them food or if he paid them wages or if they just had land to raise their own crops on. But it was an oppressive situation. And what that means for the Pharaoh is cheap labor, which means he could build a bigger structure with less money. So God has told Moses to go talk to the most powerful man in the world, one of his relatives, and tell him, I want to take money out of your pocket. How's that going to go? I think that's what Moses could see. And so what's his first reaction? It's in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses said, I don't have enough personal power. Who am I? uh, Why do you think this will work? I'm not significant enough. I'm not powerful enough. Who am I to go toe-to-toe with the Pharaoh? Powerful men only listen to other powerful men. And then they don't always listen that well. Who am I? Well, God wasn't finished with his request, and so the story carries on in chapter 3, verse 16. There's another part to this request. The first part is go talk to Pharaoh. The second part is go talk to the leaders of Israel. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. God expanded his command. Not only did Moses have to speak to the king of Egypt, he had to talk to his own people, the Jews. And Moses' response is here in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said to God, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses didn't have enough personal credibility in his own estimation. He said, I'm going to talk to these people and they will not believe me. Turn back to chapter 2. Verse 11, and look at one of the reasons they wouldn't believe him. 
Now it came to pass in those days, chapter 2, verse 11, when Moses was grown, okay, he'd grown up in Pharaoh's house, he went out to see his brethren and he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, maybe one of the taskmasters whipping the Hebrew, trying to get him to work, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw the coast was clear, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled. He ran from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses said, I don't have any personal credibility here. Moses tried to deliver his people on his own, and he failed. And now Moses is thinking, I'm going to go back and not just attempt some small thing. I'm going to say, all of you, pack your bags and follow me. We're going to leave Egypt. And he said, they're going to go right. Many years ago, my, uh, I, my church and myself were part of a, a group of churches that did a, a ministry together. And one of the pastors recommended that the group take me on as a part-time staff member. I was a home missionary, and so I was in a small church, and I wasn't fully supported. And he said, hey, let's, let's pay Dave a little bit to be our administrator to kind of help run this camp thing along a little bit. And when he said that, one of the other pastors said, I don't see a great big red S on his chest. That kind of stung. Yeah. How would Moses convince his people that he represented the unseen divine creator and sustainer of the universe? Hey, God told me. Who? So we see that Moses' first excuse regarded Pharaoh's response. This excuse regarded how his own people would see him. There's one more excuse. Follow on in chapter 4, verse 10. There's one more reason that Moses did not want to participate in God's program. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses didn't have enough personal giftedness In his opinion, he said, I'm not gifted enough. I should be able to be a a good talker, and I'm not a good talker. I'm not a natural talker. Some people naturally think and speak quickly and fluidly, and others need time to process thoughts and formulate responses, and apparently Moses was one of the latter. And most people who struggle to speak freely struggle even more when they get in front of somebody important or a group of people. And so I can imagine Moses thinking, no way, this is the worst thing. You've picked the wrong guy to do the wrong job. 
And so Moses' final attempt to get out of this is in chapter 4, verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the Lord said, okay, I'll send somebody else, but you are still involved in this. Um, So Moses gets this great call from God. We can look at the story and see all of the incredible things that are going to happen. Moses couldn't see that. He just gets this instruction from God. God isn't instructing us that way today. He's instructing us this way. But some of these commands are just as spectacular, just as uh, fantastic in our imagination as those were to Moses. And so how did God respond to Moses' excuses in trying to get out of this job? Well, God responded by promising to do something that seemed impossible. Note the difference between the two points. God called Moses to do something that seemed impossible, And then God says, I'm going to do something that seems impossible. Listen to these phrases and uh, and this question. Who did God say would deliver his people from Egypt? In chapter 3, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. In chapter 3, verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh. In chapter 3, verse 12, I will certainly be with you. In chapter 3, verse 14, say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Chapter 3, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. Chapter 3, 21, I will give this people favor with the Egyptians. God was just asking Moses to show up and do what God said while God would do the heavy lifting. What's the consistent thing in those phrases, class? God. I will, God says. I will, I will. God asked Moses to do something that seemed impossible, but what Moses wasn't grasping is, God is going to do it. You just have to show up and be there and obey and do what God says, and God will make things happen. You notice that Moses didn't ar- God didn't argue with Moses about his limitations, God didn't come to Moses and say, no, Moses, you have all the power and credibility and giftedness you need. Just dig down deep and believe in yourself. No. God knew that Moses wasn't a natural talker. God knew that Moses had had that debacle, uh, killing that Egyptian God knew that he was related to this Pharaoh, at least legally so. God didn't argue with him about the fact that there were some challenges. There are a lot of teachers on the television who would have you say that you've got it in you and you just believe in yourself and go forward, and it's not true. The apostle Paul knew that it wasn't true as well when he said this, You know, the Apostle Paul had some weakness, had some challenge, had some limitation, and he prayed for God to remove his limitation, and God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Moses is a great example of that. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that he had insurmountable weaknesses, but that didn't matter because his effectiveness in ministry wasn't dependent on his ability, but on God's power to work through him. We've been working on a transition in the BNN, and there is... We got to a point where the last thing that was required, okay, and I hope you understand the whole story here, but the last thing that was required was faith on the part of a certain person. They're going to have to make a step of faith. I am asking someone to make a step of faith in regard to their life if they're going to do certain service for God. This person is the perfect person to do this job. We all know they're the perfect person, but we cannot pay them what they need to be paid, what we want to pay them. So we're saying, would you take a step of faith? We aren't, we aren't saying it too strong, because honestly, that's a hard ask. That's a hard ask. But I know that's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to call this person up and say, now, let me just urge you to trust God, and God will come through. And if they say no, oh, we're going to be back at square one. It's going to be a huge challenge. And I think, okay, i got to call them up and talk to them about this. And so I just prayed and prayed and prayed. And before I called them, they sent me a letter and said, I talked to my wife and I believe God wants us to step out in faith. Man, I love to get letters like that. That's awesome. And you know what? I didn't do that. I can't do that, and you can't do it. There's so many things we can't do. The Apostle Paul, as much as we want to put him up on a pedestal, he didn't have himself up there. He knew that he had great challenges, but he also knew this. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. The word minister means a a person who serves someone else on the behalf of, of an authority figure. I planted, Apollos watered, talking about the seed of God's word, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and waters are one, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. I don't even, I don't even think this image is right to, to think I'm walking hand in hand with God and we're doing his work together. I don't think that communicates it. It's more like I'm in a backpack somewhere and I'm there, but he's the one doing the work. Um, God, Paul accomplished much 
because he knew who he was and he knew who he was working with. So he consistently did what God asked, even if it seemed impossible. Moses needed to realize that it was God who was going to do the seemingly impossible through him if he would show up and do what God asked. God asked him to walk into Pharaoh's palace and in time he asked him to do some miracles but he asked him to walk in there and deliver this message. What was the hard part of Moses' ministry? I think the hard part was walking into Pharaoh's palace. How's that going to go? Well, God has asked us to do some impossible things too. He's got some Pharaoh's palaces for us to walk into. I don't know what they are for you, but I've, I've kind of summarized it in two broad categories. And the first one is this, to become Christ-like in character. That's a, that's a big challenge. That's a big challenge. Here's a summary of what that looks like. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We could just stop right there and talk about the challenge of keeping your mind where God wants it to be. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would just say this. Is that easy? Do you get up in the morning thinking, oh boy, I think like Jesus all day long. Not a worry because I'm trusting in him. <laughs> That's a challenge. That's a palace you got to walk into. But then he, gets, he, he says, essentially, if your mind is in the right place, here's what your life will look for, like. Therefore, put to death your members, the parts of your life, which are the physical parts on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion. Three words that all talk about sexual sin. Put that to death. Evil desire and coveting, which is idolatry. The wanting of stuff is idolatry in God's eyes. But now, also, put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And don't lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and you've put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge. You know, I showed that list to somebody that I was counseling one time, trying to help this person understand. They were new to the Christian faith, and I was trying to help them understand what it meant to walk with the Lord, just as an example. And I read this passage, and I got the most honest response I've ever gotten from anybody. The person looked at me and said, well, I'm not doing about 75% of that stuff. Yeah. He recognized that this is a tall order. Walking with Christ is a tall order. When we consider this, this tall order that's been put in front of us and the tall order of keeping our mind where God wants it to be, we're tempted to say things like this. God, you don't know how hard my situation is. Or increasingly in our society we're saying this world makes righteous living impossible 
lot of, a lot of chatter on the internet, the Facebook right now about a certain political candidate and what it's going to be like for religious people if that candidate gets elected. You know what? The same God is still going to be sitting in heaven. But if all we do is focus on Pharaoh's palace, we are going to be scared to death. We're tempted when we see a list like this to say, you don't understand how bad the thing was that that person did to me. How long do I have to keep doing the right thing? I can't be like Christ. This is a ridiculous expectation. Those are the ways we respond to God's call to walk into Pharaoh's palace, which is our own life, and say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And if you're there with Moses saying, I'm not powerful enough, I'm not gifted enough, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. The good news is, you're right. You're right. You can't, but here's your reality. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Moses had no way of knowing. God didn't tell Moses everything that was going to happen, and he doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen. He tells us to walk with him, and we say, well, God, if I walk with you, this might happen, or this might happen, or that might happen, and God up in heaven is going, you have no idea what great things are going to happen if you'll just walk with me. And why doesn't he tell us ahead of time? Because he wants us to walk by faith. He wanted Moses to believe that he was God and that he was capable of working things out. And so at some point, Moses finally said, okay. And he walked into Pharaoh's palace and he did those miracles. And I mean, he did what God told him to do. God did the miracles. And there came a time when they picked up and left Egypt. And, and, and then they stood at the Red Sea and Moses thought, oh, God, what am I gonna do? And God said, just go like this. And Moses went, what? (laughs) Think about it. How long had Moses seen the miracle working power of God before that moment? Very little. Very little. And I I imagine there came a time when they got across the Red Sea and the the armies drowned and, and they're sitting over there that Moses went... What in the world? If you were Moses, if you had a chance to be Moses, knowing the whole story like you know it now, would you say, nah, nah? No, knowing it now, you go, yeah, yeah, I want to be there. Man, I want to I strike some people down. I want to go for all that. God has a great future for you. And it's not based on your dreams. (laughs) It's based on his plan for your life. 
but it requires you to step out in faith, believing that he will do it. And it starts with your Christian life. God will do whatever he calls you to do, but you have to step into it just as Moses had to walk into Pharaoh's palace. And that begins with believing in Christ as your Savior. And and, and I don't know if you're here today and you've never heard the wonderful truth that Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh and died on a cross while God put your sin on him and punished him for your sin. If you've never heard that, I want to share that with you today just in a very brief word and say there has to come a point in your life where you say, okay, God, I'm going to walk where you tell me to walk, and that starts with believing in Christ as my Savior. Maybe you're here and you've heard that message over and over and over and and you've just refused it. You need to believe that because there's no walk with Christ. There's no power of God until the life of Christ is implanted in you. So God calls us to do the impossible things, to become like Christ. And then the other impossible thing he calls us to do is to evangelize the world. And this one is looking harder and harder in our society. And yet it's always been hard since Christ left the planet. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know it's not easy to talk to people about the Lord. Not easy for me either. If they bring up the topic, it's easier. I know it's not easy as a church to be involved in the work of evangelism. Not easy for missionaries to go other places. God has called us to reach this town this country, and all of the countries of the world, but we're tempted, like Moses, to tell God that we don't have enough power, enough credibility, or enough giftedness to accomplish his work. We think, I I just can't do it. I'm just not that person. I'll come here to church every week, you know, and I'll, I'll put a few bucks in the offering, but I am not the person who's going to reach people for Christ Well, many of you know my friend, Pastor Tom Ruhlman. What you don't know is that two generations back, by the way, two generations reminds me, how great is it to see the second generation after the Hively's of their missionary work here last week? Two generations later, there's a young man going to school here, learning to be a pilot, going to go back and further the work of God in Indonesia. Two generations. How awesome is that? And that's the same way with Tom Ruhlman's family. His grandmother was a Christian married to an ungodly man. Ungodly like go out and get drunk on a regular basis and come home and pass out. And how did she respond to that? She picked him up, cleaned him off, put him in bed, and did it over and over and over for 15 years. And one day, God saved him. God saved him gloriously, miraculously, and he, he, he walked with the Lord as hard as he walked with the devil. 
Today there is a church on an Indian reservation with his name on it because of the influence he had for Christ in upstate New York. But that was just the beginning of, of, of their influence for Christ because they had seven children, two boys and five girls. The boys both became pastors. One of them died young uh, in adulthood, but the other one went on to be a pastor. The five girls all married pastors, and most of them migrated out here to the Northwest. And one of them was named Eisenhart, Albert and Helen Eisenhart. And Albert Eisenhart pastored the First Baptist Church of Sidrawuli back in the era during World War II and after. And there was a young guy named John Lunsford who was an ungodly Christian in World War II stationed on Whidbey Island. And he went out looking for women where you look for women at the dance hall back in that day, and he met a lovely young lady named Jewel, and they got married, and he was such an ungodly Christian, he didn't even bother to find out if she was a Christian or not, and she was not. But he was enough of a Christian to know they should go to church, so they started going to church, and the church they went to wasn't showing them much, and so they migrated down the road and found a church on a Sunday night, and it was the First Baptist Church of Cedra Woolley. And my mom got saved, and my dad got right with the Lord, and they accepted God's call into ministry. And not only that, but they got so convinced of the importance of salvation that they prayed that God would never give them children if they would not believe in Christ as their Savior. And so they waited seven years for my sister, and they waited another four for their perfect child. (laughs) And they prayed until God called him into the ministry. And I'm standing here today because of Tom Ruman's grandmother. Now, in her day... Understand that I'm not demeaning her or women, but in her day, she would have said, what can I do for the Lord? I'm just a woman married to an ungodly husband. And she would have been tempted to give up on her godliness and just go to the tavern with him, just enter into that wicked lifestyle to be one with her husband. But she didn't do that. And she found some way to love her husband until he came to Christ. What's your I'm just a? She was just a woman. What's yours? I'm just a kid. I'm just an old person. I'm just. What's yours? Truly, the Lord only knows how many hundreds of people have come to faith in Christ because of that woman's walk with the Lord in a hard place. The work of God in your life is dependent on one thing, and that is you seeing him for who he is, the God of the universe. 
couple of years ago, I heard Tim Messikep was working out in Bangladesh. Now, if you've been around the church for a few years, you remember Tim. He was a kid. He was our first technology coordinator. We hired him after he fixed our phone system. He said, do you have a manual? And we said, yes. It was about this thick. And two days later, it was all working. Our voicemail system. We need him to come back and work on it some more. Time went on. He got his master's degree. He was a teaching fellow in math at Western Washington. And then he got into the Ph.D. in math program at the University of Washington, which is a pretty big deal just to get accepted. And after his first year, one of his friends, Kathleen Long, who some of you will remember, encouraged him to come out to Bangladesh and teach math in a school run by missionaries which primarily is for the nationals. It's an attempt to bridge the gap there in a, uh, in a uh, difficult country. And uh, so he went out there to teach math. And uh, I got his prayer letter. It's awesome. It's awesome how the Lord has worked in his life. But this is what he wrote. This is a reflection on going to a Christmas church service. On Christmas Day, I went to the large church nearby, nearby where he lives, where about 500 to 600 Bangladeshis gathered for worship. One of the songs we sang was a Bangla, that's what they call their language, a Bangla translation of Charles Wesley's 1739 hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Afterwards, I wondered if Wesley could ever have imagined that his song would be an encouragement to Christians some 275 years later in a different continent, in a different language. How gracious God is to weave our humble service to him into a tapestry of mercy and blessing far beyond all that we could ask or think. Christian, who knows what the ripple effects of your good works will be down through the centuries. I want to challenge you today to not see yourself as too small, too insignificant, too ungifted. I don't want you to see your church that way. And it's not because we're many in number. It's because we're walking with the God of the universe. We are his fellow workers. He is working in us and through us. And we need to go in that faith and walk into the palace wherever it is for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the power in our lives and in our ministry for you. Truly, we cannot do it without you. It's just that we we realize that every so often in a fresh way, and I pray that people will realize it today and realize that they have great potential in you Because you do want to accomplish things in them and through them. Father, have your your way in people's lives today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.